Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watt and I am, as ever, not joined by Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. And Bradley Orsop. Hi there, folks. And this week we'll be talking about one of the biggest stories uh, on in British politics, unfortunately, certainly on the left, at the sacking of Rebecca Long-Bailey, former uh, candidate for leadership of the Labour Party, uh, former uh, education shadow education secretary and former uh, shadow secretary to the Treasury, uh, one of the architects of the 2017 uh, general election manifesto, which nearly got Labour into power, uh, considered to be a left-wing stalwart, uh, possible British equivalent Jacinda Ardern, uh, in New Zealand, uh, but now she has been sacked from the shadow cabinet by uh, Keir Starmer for allegedly, well, not allegedly, sharing a uh, article by the actress, prominent Labour supporting actress Maxine Peake, uh, which was alleged to have a anti-Semitic conspiracy theory or an allusion to. Uh, an anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theory in it. Um, but there is some question over whether uh, it, whether the content that was shared was anti-Semitic in the first place. Um, but regardless of whether it it was an anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theory, and, and by the way, the, the, what was actually said was shown to be slightly inaccurate anyway, and Maxine Peake has clarified that herself. Um, another question... Uh, is whether is how that is perceived. Um, do people who are uh, Jewish uh, feel like this, uh, you know, sharing something which is not uh, on paper anti-Semitic, uh, it still could be considered a dog whistle um, for anti-Semitism? That's an important point we're going to cover. Um, and we're also going to ask the question uh, whether Keir Starmer was therefore right to sack RLB uh, and what the response should be from members. Uh, and we're going to conclude by considering the question of whether our government is now become openly corrupt in the light of the uh, generic housing scandal. So I'm going to pose the first question to uh, Bradley. Um, the article by Maxine Peake uh, was broadly about uh, George Floyd um, and the police who murdered him, effectively. Um, they, uh, well, the, uh, a lot of police, not even the police involved, uh, were said to have been, uh, had a lot of training in Israel, and it was implied that they had learned uh, the technique, the pressing on the neck from uh, the Israeli uh, defence forces. Um, is that an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, Bradley? Um, I mean, it, it's certainly unverified. It, it, so far, I've not seen evidence um, emerge, and I'm sure if it was there, it would have emerged by now, of Israeli forces teaching that specific method directly to us, please. The, the evidence isn't there for that. So obviously there should have been, a, a, well, there has been, There's been that's been admitted by the Independent and by Maxine Peake, um, and that, that comment has been corrected. It's not... A million miles away from what we can prove, though, you know. So it, it, it's fairly well evidenced that that Israeli forces train um, a number of police forces around the world, including the US, in in um, 
suppression techniques. Um, and I, I don't think anyone is going to claim that Israeli forces have not ever been caught on camera using quite um, harsh uh, and unsafe methods to, to Palestinian protesters, for instance. Um, so it, the specific claim itself was unverified and, and shouldn't shouldn't have been printed. Um, but it, it's also not a million miles away for, from, from what we can prove. Um, so I, I think it's a case of perhaps... Uh, a slightly thoughtless comment put, put in an article that, that has been rightly retracted. Um, I think if you also read it, I mean, so, so that's one issue of the specific claim not not quite being proven that, that is an issue. The second issue is that people were sort of saying, well, why mention Israel in the context of George Floyd at all? You know, are you just trying to draw links to sort of Israel being behind all sorts of global events, which it, which would be anti-Semitic. That is an anti-Semitic trope. Um I don't, if you read the context of the quote, I don't quite think that's what she meant. Um, I think it would be an uncharitable reading of what she was trying to do. Um, she mentioned the Israeli police force because what, what she says immediately before is that the sort of issues we're seeing in the US are global issues, um, which is right. You know, it's not the, what she was trying to say was that it's not the only, only the US police force that, that deploy um, these sorts of tactics. It's not only the US police force that has an issue with, with violence and injustice. Um, it, it, it's a problem in many countries around the world. Um, now, what I read that next bit is talking about Israel for was that she was using Israel as an, as an example of, of that. Um, I, I don't think she was trying to suggest um, is, Israel is behind all of this and Israel is directly um, the cause of what happened to George Floyd. I, I, I didn't read the article as, as her trying to say that, um, but I suppose that interpretation is there. I think the other thing to consider is that it, it wasn't like a, an article she'd written that she would have had time to sit over and ponder and, and, and think carefully about her word selection. It was an interview and it was probably an example she came up with off the cuff. Um, so for me, I, I can sort of see why some could read it as playing into anti-Semitic tropes um, and, and perhaps therefore the example you should should have been changed to a different one. Um but but I, I don't think that was the intention of what was being said in that interview. Mm. I think it might be you know instructive to sort of read uh, the part of the article that uh, it, that's being referred to. Um, so the title of the article is uh, Maxine Peake interview about. Oh, sorry. The um, the title is Maxine Peake. People who couldn't vote Labour because of Corbyn. They voted Tory as far as I'm concerned. It's in the Independent. It's still up. You can read it. It's been uh, edited for, for, for clarity. Um, it says, um, uh, I don't know how we escape that cycle that's indoctrinated into us all, uh, continues the 45-year-old. Uh, well, we get rid of it and we get rid of capitalism as far as I'm concerned. That's what it's about. The establishment has got to go. We've got to change it. Uh, born in Bolton to a lorry driver father and a care home mother, Peak is strident and expressive. Uh, if religion wasn't athema, athema, eh, anathema to her, uh, she'd be perfect in the pulpit. And she says, systemic racism is a global issue, she adds. Uh, the tactics used by the police in America, kneeling on George, Floyd, George Floyd's neck, was learnt from seminars with Israeli secret services. So she says, so not, uh, not the IDF. Uh, Israeli secret services um, and then it's got in brackets as an edited um, part of the article um, a spokesman for the Israeli police has denied this uh, stating that there is no tactic or protocol that calls 
to put pressure on the neck or airway. So it's factually inaccurate, this, this, this quote. Um, what you, uh, as you say, Bradley, um, it's an interview, so it's probably something that she said that she had remembered and then said uh, off the cuff. Um, Callum, could this... So the, the, there's several layers to it, aren't there? This is something that... Uh, this has gone through several layers. So this is something that Maxine Peake has said to a journalist. Um, she's not written it down. She's not necessarily thought it through. Um, and then in the context of what's quite a long article, um, that has then been shared by uh, a politician, presumably wanting to uh, communicate the, the main story, which is about Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, um, Labour supporters who who voted Tory, right? Yeah, I, can I just um, get yeah, Rebecca yeah. Lossley tweeted um, obviously after it all blew up because mm. uh, her and her initial tweet was Maxine Peake is an absolute diamond, right? Um, she then went on to clarify what she meant. She said, "I retweeted Maxine Peake's article because of her significant achievements and because the thrust of her argument is to stay in the Labour Party." I wasn't intended to be an, an endorsement of all aspects of the article. So I, I, I think just from that, I don't think Rebecca Long-Bailey should be conflated with everything that's in the article because she shared an article about staying in the Labour Party, about fighting for what is right. And as we've seen in the article itself, it's talking about global racism and it happens to be that this example used was ill-informed in that it used incorrect facts, um, which which I think is 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 where we've got the situation that we have now. But I wouldn't say that Rebecca Long Bailey is anti-Semitic for sharing that article. Uh, to be fair, that's that's never been a suggestion. No one's ever suggested that. Well, uh, sharing anti-Semitic conspiracies. Then um, I don't think yeah. she's. She, she shares that that conspiracy that in some it, it for some reason that the uh, state of Israel is is responsible for George Floyd's death or the actions of American police or or, or any racism around the world I think that that's that's mm-hmm. a complete fabrication I, d- I don't even think that's what the initial article was claiming I, I don't think so either but that's that's the connection that was being made yeah I think Hence, Hence the clarification from from the independent afterwards, and it, and it's quite easy, you know. If Mac, what has probably happened is Maxine Peake has read somewhere at some point in the past about how um, Israel has provided training to, to US police forces on suppression protesters, um, and and she at, at some other point she may have seen some of the photos that are circulating on Facebook um, that show, um, I I don't I don't know exactly whether it's police or if it's IDF or what. Um, but but um, some form of official Israeli forces le- um, kneeling on Palestinian um, protesters' necks in in the same way that happens to George Floyd. And obviously, I don't know if those photos are accurate or anything. But she, you know, so she may have seen these things around. And in an interview, in in the in the moment, she she's um, drawn on that as an example and, and conflated those two things together. So those two separate bits of evidence don't don't prove that Israeli forces have trained um, U.S. police to kneel on the necks of anyone. 
Um, but you, you could sort of see how in an interview, when she, she's sort of quickly scrambling for an example, those two things may have become completed in her head. I, I think that's maybe what has happened. I don't, I don't think she's necessarily trying to say um, Israel is, is at fault for what happened to George Floyd. Mm. Well, it's something that we all on the left, and we're going to return to this point about the 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 the, the, um, uh, the lack of parity between the left and the right, and how how we're scrutinised. But we all have to be very careful about what we say and what we share and what we promote, because everything that you, the way that I think about my social media, for example, everything that one puts on there, it should be considered a public statement. Um, and if you're sharing something which is potentially problematic, then you need to address that when you're sharing it. Um, so, I, and so share it. Um, is it not the case then that Keir Starm, the reason that Rebecca Long Bailey has been sacked, is not necessarily because she shared something that's anti-Semitic or that she herself is anti-Semitic, and there's no suggestion that that is uh, the case at all, um, but that she has been careless. And carelessness is, is the key here. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's, certainly his later leadership, was plagued by the issue of anti-Semitism. Is it not the case that Keir Starmer's basically seeking to nip this in the bud? You know, to, to this this is the first showing of a potential scandal around anti-Semitism, and he has come down uh, hard on it to prevent anything like that from from happening in the future. So, and and the question, therefore, I really want to ask is that, you know, is Rebecca Long Bailey therefore uh, the sacrificial lamb to serve a greater purpose in that respect to actually try and prevent? Keir Starmer's leadership, Keir Starmer's Labour Party, from being undermined almost from the beginning by the same sort of asinine conflict that Jeremy Corbyn suffered from. I think um, if I remember the months ago when we had the leadership election, Keir Starmer's, well, one of his key pledges was to root out anti-Semitism from within the party. Um, So I think this is him wanting to be seen to be acting on that pledge because i remember um he he was he was he was widely praised for making that very strong commitment and i think pretty much all the leadership candidates made that commitment to say that they were there to root out anti-semitism to try and move on from the from as you say the latter stages of the corbyn leadership that were just dogged by it there was so many accusations and so much in the press about it so I think this is him taking that opportunity to have a high profile instance of him being a leader taking action against anti-semitism whether whether we believe that he's he's rightly or wrongly is that is a debate we've had earlier but that's that's what I think he's he wants to be seen to be doing is to be acting in the interest of the Jewish community and, and seeing to take an action against anti-semitism within the Labour Party Bradley, what do you think? I mean, I, I don't think anyone really, unless they're an anti-Semite, could disagree with the idea of a zero tolerance policy for, for anti-Semitism or any or any form of prejudice in the party. Um, I, I don't think there's really anyone that disagrees with that that statement, at least publicly. Um, I think the pro- the problem is is 
do do you risk by by enforcing it in the way Starmer seems to be doing so? Do you risk actually unfairly um, sacking or potentially expelling people? Um, I, I really. So we've had this conversation around what was in the article, and and I think we all agree that that the claim in it shouldn't have been in there because it was unfounded, um, and and that that has been retracted since Maxine Peake has accepted that and apologised for that. Um, it's another question entirely whether someone um, tweets that that interview, of which this quote was a very small part, whether really they can really be held responsible in that way. Now I understand that you know she's a she's a frontline politician. Um, and, and has a certain amount of responsibility attached to that. Um, but I also don't think we can expect politicians to exhaustively fact-check every claim made in an article they ever share. Um, if if this wasn't anything to do with Israel, you know, if this, if this was a... If, if RRB had tweeted something about uh, uh, welfare payments by the government, um, that, uh, you know, an article that talked about welfare payments by the government, and that had contained the factual inaccuracy, um, There'd be no question that she'd be getting sacked by Starmer over that at all. That, the idea of that would be ridiculous. Yeah, you know, she, she, when it came to light, she'd probably rightly tweet uh, an apology saying this bit of the article is incorrect, um, and that, and that would be the end of the matter. There'd be no suggestion at all that she gets sacked for tweeting a, an, an inaccuracy within an article. Um, so I, I think we we do we do need to think carefully about whether you know a lot of people on Facebook have sort of said, oh well, zero This is what zero tolerance looks like. I'm, I'm not sure that's true. I think this is something other than zero tolerance policy. This, this has gone into something else a little bit, I think. Um, and it it perhaps sets a slightly dangerous precedent for, for where it might go next. So um, it's, uh, I, I'm inclined to disagree to some extent. Um, what I said earlier is, um, I, I refer you to what I said earlier in that, you know, once you become a politician, you are a public figure. Um, and I think you have to comb through everything that you post very closely. Um, Does a frontline politician have time to do that? If you if you if you, re, if you tweet an opinion piece, it it could potentially um, you know require you to Google um, studies on dozens of things. A, a frontline politician wouldn't have time to do that. They they simply wouldn't be able to ever tweet anything if that was the case. Uh, I mean, MPs have staff. They have uh, people who can uh, research and fact check for them at, at their disposal. Whether that's an appropriate use of resources, I'm not sure. But uh, I think the issue for Rebecca Long Bailey, uh, in part, as I as I understand it, was 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 that she refused to actually delete the original tweet. The accusation was very strong that it had a that it had an anti anti Semitic conspiracy theory in it and so if you are accepting by apologizing that that's true can you really allow the article to remain in place if she had deleted it do you think that she could have survived in the shadow cabinet my my inclination is 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 no i think there would have been another reason to get rid of her um i know this is meant to be a a leadership of unity, um, trying to bring in all sides of the party. Um, but I, I'm increasingly feeling like the left of the party is being marginalised um, because I, I think um, somebody pointed out quite quite rightly some of the dual standards, even towards our own MPs. So uh, Rachel Reeves tweeted um, 
this year about Nancy Astor praising her. It's the first uh, woman MP to sit in Parliament. Now, Nancy Astor, for those that don't know, she was uh, a Nazi sympathiser. And not once in this thread of tweets, I'm looking at them now, does it acknowledge that? You know, sometimes history, we have to look at all sides of characters. Yes, she's a historical figure, but we she didn't appreciate that in the light of the fact that she's also effectively a Nazi. Um, and a famous so, anti-Semite. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I think there is a dual standard here. And I think um, if we're going to be harsh on one person, every single case from now has got to be treated the same. Um, that, that seems far more about. clear than what happened with RLB, doesn't it? You know, the, yeah. You know, it t- yeah. tweeting uh, an interview of which a small part contained um, uh, uh, an untruth about about um, a training program of, of Israeli forces. Um, you know, that that's very, very, very different to tweeting support of an actual anti, uh, an actual unknown and famous anti-Semite. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the situation I think we're in. I, I feel, um, you know, and I think we can we can sense it from even just how we're discussing it now. We, we seem to be really trying to make sure we're getting the right words across because it's that much of a of a, of a big issue in the party. And, and in this podcast, we're just trying to make sure we get our words right. We don't get them mixed. We almost fact check ourselves before we say anything. Rightly so. But it feels like if if. If Rachel Reeves can tweet that and not have any repercussions, it does feel like it's a very one-sided attack, in a sense, at times. I mean, is the left really being uh, really being marginalised? Is it not? Um, maybe you think it's a silly question in the context of what you just said, but Lloyd Russell Mole, for example, still in the is still in the shadow cabinet. Um, there are well, is it not just a a coincidence perhaps that potentially potentially again i i'm i'm inclined at the moment it feels like that but i mean i'm i'm happy to wait and see um lloyd russell moore is a perfect example of of, a, of an mp that's doing a great job as well um not that becca long bailey was but he's he's at the moment very high profile um labor mp doing a great job in his constituency he's getting all the right headlines apart from the headlines he was getting in the last general election but apart from that he's um you know i think that's the the difference is that she seems to be a high profile scalp as well because she's so um entwined with the corbyn project yeah don't don't get me wrong i think there are probably people who are who are celebrating that she's gone from the shadow cabinet because of that um wholly and absolutely um however I think on the on the other side of things, I think that a lot of uh, left wing people, um, you know, we're used to being. And we, as I say, we'll talk about the the, um, the double standards in terms of scrutiny, but we're used to being under pressure, and we're used to uh, you know having the world against us, right? Uh, the media, yeah, yeah. the political establishment, and so on. Um, I almost feel like there's a tendency towards seeing everything as an attack. Um, and as I say, I know that will be the motivation for some people for getting RLB. I'm not convinced it's Keir Starmer's 
to be honest. I feel like he is he's probably got the hardest job in British politics being the leader of just not just as the leader of the opposition, the leader of uh, a very, very huge, um, diverse coalition, political coalition that is the Labour Party. Um, and he does not want to do anything which is going to undermine or detract from uh, his path to number 10, right? Rightly or wrongly. It may well be that this does cause him trouble in the long run because, of course, RLB was a sort of totem for the left. However, with, there are other left-wingers in the Labour Party, you know, and the movement is much bigger than one individual. You know, most of the, most of the membership have, uh, joined post-Corbyn, right? Momentum is still a thing. The left is still very strong. the the only the, the real the only real drawback is it doesn't control the NEC, and that is a that is a serious problem, um, and that does need to change. But I don't think people should panic or get too depressed about this particular incident. It should you shouldn't let it sort of define your way forward. You shouldn't certainly shouldn't leave over it. So I think we can agree on on that. Basically, I think it's too early to say what impact this is going to have. You know, this is just our hot take. Um, Aaron Bastani was very quick to label this war on the left. Um, I think that's a gross over-exaggeration. I think this is a very unfortunate event. Maybe it was, I think it was possibly heavy-handed by Keir Starmer, but I understand his motivations for wanting to do it, to try and nip any sign of potential anti-Semitism in the bud. Uh, or, or allusions to anti-Semitism in the bud, and that's why he's done uh, what he's done. I'll let you come back, and then we will. You, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong on that point, Callum, um, and then we'll. I think we'll move on to the next topic, Callum. Yeah, I, I think I, I can agree with you in the sense that, um, as I said earlier, Keir Starmer's one of his key pledges was to root out and remove anti-Semitism from the Labour Party. And I think he has been seen to be taking action on that now. Um, you know, as I said, uh, also Rebecca Long Bailey was a prominent figure in the Corbyn shadow cabinet, so therefore she's entwined with that with that reputation of of, of anti-Semitism, whether it's rightly or wrongly founded. Um, so, in a sense, he's he's. I think he is trying to seem to be turning a new page, moving on to the next chapter of the Labour Party um, in in terms of going forward from here. Okay, Bradley, you want to come back as well? Yeah, and I think with, with things like this, I always find it, it's it's almost immaterial what his actual motives were. You know, we, we could sit around and debate all day what we think, you know, what we think actually motivated what he did. Um, you know, if, if you're, you know, there's these petitions going around trying to save Rebecca Long Bailey. I, I don't think that that's really going to go anywhere. I think it's sort of a done deal now. Um, but but if people want to engage in that, then the question they need to really ask themselves was, um, was it right for her to be sacked or not? It doesn't really matter what the reason for him to do it was. What matters is, was it the correct decision? Um, and and in terms of you know how we deal with anti-Semitism in the future, the question is then, what matters there is, you know, what how, how do we approach anti-Semitism, how, 
how do we define what what is anti-Semitic, what isn't? Those are the sorts of questions that matter. What what is actually motivating Kia doesn't really matter, and none of us can really know. And um, we can only sort of guess at things. So I always find this sort of debate around, oh, you know, what, what, why did he do such and such? I don't know if it's really that helpful in terms of practical step next steps. I think it is important because we need to. I think we need to know what to expect from him going forward. That that would be sort of my. Uh, reply to that you know because he 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 is the leader of the Labour Party he's going to be at least for the next four years unless something very dramatic happens and then obviously at the end of that or unless there's an early general election which obviously you know is all as we know is always a possibility yeah okay should should we get should we get bogged down in 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 analyzing the psychology of of the leader of the Labour Party Maybe that's not too helpful, but I think, I think, as I say, I think time will tell. It does raise uh, another question, which is, um, you know, how we on the left can actually talk about not just Palestine, actually, but um, our obviously colonial history, which has obviously come up a lot during um, the Black Lives Matter. Uh, event, shall we say, of the last of the last month or so, um, our culpability in things like the the Malay emergency, as it was called, for insurance reasons, uh, our actions in Kenya and and, and so on, um, you know, because there's going to be always a really strong uh, attempt to portray anyone who tries to say that Britain is the villain, if you like, on the global scale, um, as as being sort of anti-British. Um, and I just wondered if, the, if you had any thoughts on how we talk about those things, how we, how we, how do we project empathy and how do we sort of encourage people to care about other people around the world um it perhaps the answer is to you know look at people like bernie sanders who always frames um foreign policy in the context of what's in the interests of the united states um you know it's in the interests of the united states to be friendly with the rest of the world and not to bomb them right that's that's the that's the that's the approach whereas in the jeremy corbyn era it was all about um, we should care about people just because we should care about them, and maybe that's not sufficient to uh, to gain political capital. So, sorry, can you rephrase that? I wasn't quite sure on that. Basically, how do we how do we talk about how do we get people to care about foreigners? <laughs> it's it is really my question. Um, you know, how do we how do we get a moral foreign policy um, in a, a political context where it's so it, it's becoming increasingly nationalistic and where people who want to care about the Palestinians um, or, or uh, any uh, without being sort of labelled as sort of anti-British and or is that just simply impossible? 
Jesus, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think the, th- the first thing in terms of like how we talk about Israel-Palestine without sort of um, slipping into anti-Semitic language or anything that can be conceived as it, I think for me, the focus has always got to be on, on systems, not, not on people or, or groups. It's got to be on the systems. And that, that's what socialism should be about. So socialism, as I understand it, doesn't really blame... Uh, I mean, we, we, we talk about rich people and, and that sort of stuff, but we, we don't really blame rich people. The, the problem isn't that people are rich. The problem is the system that enables them to be. Um, that As a socialist, we want to change a capitalist system so that it works for everyone. That, that that's what our focus is that the ultimate problem in society isn't a few bad eggs it is the system and it, and it's not it's not a group of people either based on race or anything else the problem is the system um, and and how and the question then is how we change the system so I, I think that's always useful and that and that to me is always a good way to avoid conspiracy theories so you know you, you'll often find in sort of left-wing anti-semitism and um, you know you'll, you'll hear people talk about sort of um Jewish bankers and, and Jewish businessmen and to me that's I mean there'll obviously be people that, that dabble in that stuff that are just racists and, and need to be booted out but there'll also be a group of people that listen to that sort of thing and it's an issue of political education so you know the, the, the problem isn't that, that there's a small number of people controlling the world because there aren't there aren't a small number of people controlling the world we, ha- we have a system that allows accumulation of profit which, which centers wealth in, in the hands of a few that's the problem and, and we need to fix the system it's not, it's not about any the, so when you recognize that and you, and you start to analyze the system and, and what what reforms you need to change the system then you, you're moving the focus away from sort of dabbling in conspiracy theories about George Soros or, or anything else like that that sort of nonsense so I think that that's one useful thing for, for I suppose the left keeping itself in check the question always needs to be the system and, and what 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 systemic reform do we need if we keep the conversation on that, um, then, then that will help to some degree. Um, from you know, that will keep us away from these sorts of, of stupid conspiracy theories that go around sometimes. Um, in terms of getting people to to care about other people, um, I suppose it's an age-old question, really, isn't it? To some extent, um, I think I think a, a chunk of it will be that actually a lot of people have got quite a lot for the, to worry about themselves. Um, and they don't always have the capacity to, to worry about people in other countries or, or from other communities. Um, so I suppose to some degree, uh, alleviating those issues um, domestically will, may, will maybe help, um, which, which I suppose is a whole set of other questions about how, how do we win power as the left and then transform society. So once we've done all that, maybe people will start to care a bit more. Um, I suppose maybe not always couching it in nationalistic terms as well. Um, so talking about it in terms of class, maybe not overtly talking about the working class, but in class sort of friendly language. So, you know, there are there are parallels between um, the working class in this country that have been um, denied control over their lives um, by capital. They, they've seen um, stagnant wages and, and poor renting conditions and all the rest of it. There are it, there, there are other bigger issues for the people of Palestine or for black communities in America. Um, but there are links between the, those issues as well. Um, and broadly, it's because of, a, of a, a global capitalist system. Again, it's about talking about this system and how that operates and how that oppresses different groups in different ways. Um, and that's not an easy thing to suddenly start trying to convey to, to you know, working class communities in, in Lincoln. Um, but I suppose it's a broad strategy and approach that we can adopt. Pro- sorry, that's probably not really a very good answer, um, but it, it's maybe 
maybe this an approach maybe i don't know on the contrary i thought that was a very lucid answer actually um you know so the the, the reason um i've never taken any credence in anti-semitic theory is that obviously i i knew jewish kids growing up they were just like me um some of them in the same socioeconomic background some of them lived in poverty and so the logic for me, the, the, the logic of there being some kind of global Jewish conspiracy just seemed to hold no water for me because I was thinking, well, if that was true, they should be living at large, surely. You know, you should all be doing well out of it. So it's clearly not nothing to do with them being part of this um, Jewish nation. It's, it's, it's actually just, well, well, as I was to sort of discover later, it's just capitalism. Um, and capitalism is... Um, is very discriminatory, but if you happen to sit on the top of the of the pole, um, it doesn't matter what uh, race, religion, creed, or whatever you are. If you are wealthy, you can get your own way, and if you're poor, you can't. Um, and race, religion, and creed is used simply used as a way to divide people. So, if you consider yourself on the left and you're uh, engaging in uh, anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories or uh, you know, or, or, or uh, indulging in that sort of thing, um, you are playing straight into the hands of that corrupt system that you um, purport to oppose. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I think I think that that's the point, isn't it? I think once the focus is on capitalism as a system and the logic of capitalism and how it and how it's self-sustaining in many ways, then it, it it's irrelevant whether someone's Jewish or Muslim or Christian or anything like. That that's what I've always thought, you know. When, pe- when people share this sort of nonsense in in, in their Facebook groups and things, um, my question is all, you know, like, oh, such and such a banker um, has done X, Y, and Z, and he's Jewish, and I'm always like, well, what what's the relevance of him being Jewish? It, it doesn't matter when when you realise the issue is the capitalist system, and 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 there are a set of ways to replace that with something else. It becomes irrelevant what what, what religion or, or race someone is. Um, and I suppose beyond that, though, if the reverse is true. If we can, I think often while a lot of people struggle with these with these sorts of things, and you know they struggle with the with the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, or or with um, the persecution of, of Palestinians, is that one, it's, it doesn't feel relevant to them. But two, I think there's almost a sort of well, we've got to deal with our problems first. Um, so we haven't really got time or money or energy to to deal with other people's problems. So I suppose it's getting to a point where we can show people that it it's all part of the same fight it, it's all part of the same struggle um it may look very different to different people around the world and they'll have their own specific you know there there are things going on in israel and palestine that that aren't aren't directly tied to, to capitalism but but capitalism is a part of it and and it is part of the issues that happen in black communities in the us as well it, it is all a part of it um so i suppose it's trying to convince people that um Everyone's liberation is our liberation. Mm. I mean, it's a massive part of it. I, the, the, um, the, the the primary reason I've always thought that um, the United States of America is so interested in preserving Israel is not about out of any religious mission, but rather because um, it's an allied country right next to the Suez Canal right next to all those lovely oil fields in Saudi Arabia um, and not too far from Russia and the Bosphorus either. 
um, that's why they're interested. It, it, that's why they're interested in it, and they don't give too much of a damn. I think what internal policy uh, the government there uh, puts forward, whether they want to uh, oppress a minority there, and just so long as they can keep their air bases. That's always been my perspective on it. That's why they don't want. I think that's why it's, there's there isn't uh, like this. Uh, well, of course, there are people from Israel who are trying to influence um, foreign politicians because we do that as well. Right? We've got embassies all around the world who are trying to persuade uh, representatives of their governments to do things that are in our interests. Uh, Israel is no different in that respect, but there's a sort of conspiracy that there's this sinister Israel lobby that's operating in every country and it's unique in that respect. No, it absolutely isn't. Um, the reason why um, the, the United States is so closely allied to Israel is because, as I say, it's got a lot of air bases there, it's a nuclear power, it's allied to them, and it's in a strategic location. Um, and that is, as you say, tied to capitalism. Because, of course, having control of, the, of those important waterways around there and having uh, open access to um, uh, all of those natural resources that are in that region uh, is critical to the capitalist economy, critical to con controlling it. Um, and that's, that's effectively what it is. So, you know, clear your mind of those stupid conspiracy theories and think about the material reasons why politicians do the things that they do. Um, you know, it's exactly the same with, um, you know, the, 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 the crusade against Jeremy Corbyn. I strongly suspect that um, obviously some, uh, obviously all anti-Semitism is bad, but I suspect that a lot of the politicians who are attacking Jeremy Corbyn uh, over it, didn't really give a damn about Israel and didn't give a damn about Jewish people. Uh, they were doing it purely because they wanted to undermine the leader of the Labour Party, and if it wasn't useful for them, um, they would never, they would never say anything about it. I suspect that's just me being a bit cynical, but uh, I think you know clear analysis of of the the geopolitics. Um, that's involved, I think, is necessary to let the scales fall from your eyes. And, and, how, and how capitalism works as a system, I think, I think without, without having read into, you know, sort of some of the, the, the theory about how capitalism works and sustains itself, I suppose uh, it, it, it's quite easy to sort of think of, well, there, there must be a group of people controlling it. Um, and then if someone comes along with some sort of, you know, an, anti-Semitic trope, and you could quite easily fall for that if that's your understanding of capitalism. You know, you, you think, well, capitalism is basically just a load of rich people controlling the world, isn't it? But it, but it's not it's not really. There are rich people that benefit it from it more than others. But but there's no group of people that control capitalism. Capitalism is a is a, a system with its own life and its own logic. So I suppose political education and economic education on, on how that works, I suppose, is is perhaps a, a good antidote to, to anti-Semitic tropes on the left, at least, anyway. I, th I think for some people it's comforting, actually. Um, I, think they, I think they like to imagine... I think they like to imagine that there's this group of people who are actually controlling the world. And I think even though they, they, they rail against that, um, I think that those people f find that idea comforting because the alternative 
is to imagine that that, that is to realize that, that there is an awful lot of chaos um and nobody really knows what's going to happen and that there are uh, governments that are have competing interests there are corporations and wealthy people who are trying to influence politicians as well, which we'll come on into a moment. And there are big movements of people who can also influence what happens as well through civil disobedience, civil disobedience and their own behaviour and so on. All of that is very complicated and takes a lot of thought. And so I think for the small-minded conspiracy theorists, it's much easier to think it's all part of some grand plan um and and uh and actually I, I suspect some of them think it's all going to work out well in the end because these people have a plan for us right yeah yeah it's um, easier to believe that i suppose um and and also of course there, there will just be some people that, that are just racist um, well yeah party yeah yeah 100 um so speaking of uh corruption and double standards uh, we'll go on to our final story, which is uh, uh, the right dishonourable, uh, I mean, right honourable uh, Robert Jenrick, MP, uh, who uh, is the, uh, uh, the, sorry, Secretary of State, not Shadow, Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government of the United Kingdom. That's his official title. And he has been, he, he has been accused of corruption and, and his response to it uh, has been basically it seems to shrug his shoulders and say yeah actually I, I am corrupt not in so many words um, basically there is a very famous actually Richard Desmond uh, is the uh, the owner of the the Daily Express called Dirty Des by some by some in the media for his uh, some of his porn output over the years as well. And he, uh, not that I want to denigrate too much the the, 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 the porn industry necessarily, he, he's accused of giving bribes to uh, to Robert Jenrick. Um, and this has sort of manifested in the sense of uh, Robert Jenrick turning around and saying, well, if you, if you buy an expensive ticket to a dinner and you sit next to MPs, of course you can influence them. That's just how our democracy works. Um, which of course, uh, or doesn't work. Which of course, this is how you know we've always known this sort of thing go on. But is it unusual, Callum, to see uh, a politician openly acknowledging that they are corrupt in this way? I think it is unusual, but I think that what we're faced with is is this new sort of Boris Boris approach to things. And given his past and the lack of accountability, it seems almost uh, well, it seems apparent to me that what politicians can do, namely Tory MPs, is that they can just admit to their their ills and they'll just say that, well, people just shrug it off because that's what we're like. That is what the political class is. And I think that's a really dangerous precedent to set, if I'm honest with you. I think it basically, um, if, if we normalise corruption, if we say that corruption is is a normal part of the political structure the political system in this country then we're going down a very dark and dangerous path i mean it, it, i think there's probably an element of the the, the tories are thinking well you know there's a global pandemic and recession on so may, maybe no one's paying that much attention um which depressingly m- might partly be be true um but it, it's not without precedent really is it if you if you look at 
if you there, there's a long history, isn't there, of um, Tory donors ending up suddenly with services um, in their laps that they that they didn't have before. Um, I think if you look at, um, I read some a while back on um, academy chains, you know, with, with schools being turned into academy chains, um, and and some of the people that end up at the helm of those um, who who are actually significant conservative donors. So it it's not, I don't think corruption in the Conservative Party um, is anything new. I think it's something that's got a long a long pedigree. Um, and I suppose the job for us as the left is um, making sure that there's still scrutiny and accountability there, even under these bizarre political times we've got at the moment. Yeah. So what uh, um, Joan Rick's basically accused of is, is rushing a housing application uh, from uh, Richard Desmond. Um, there's been a release, this is from The Guardian, a uh, release of cachet of correspondence showing numerous interactions between uh, Jenrick and Richard Desmond um, over a £1 billion property development in East London uh, and that he therefore rushed through the planning decision uh, regarding it. Um, it and it's, I, I think this sort of 12 years ago, back in, in the days of, of Labour government, you know, he would have resigned probably within a day. Now, I'm not sure if uh, a Labour politician would really be quite that corrupt. I'm <laughs> um, sure I'm, you know, there are vast numbers of, of Labour politicians. I'm not saying or, uh, you know, there, ha- there haven't been examples of corrupt, uh, um, corrupt ones, but usually they've been caught out and they get uh, chucked out pretty quickly. Jenrick, he's still a minister he's still an mp and some several days after this story broke and most likely nothing's going to happen to him you know it's and it's absolutely astonishing i think it's i it probably starts really in the in the in the cameron era but it's been particularly bad i would say since 2015 boris johnson himself now the Prime Minister, previously the Foreign Secretary, was caught out saying all sorts of racist things that, and, and also the mo- most dr- dramatically, you know, if you if you recall of the um, British Iranian lady who was uh, imprisoned uh, allegedly for spying in Iran, and he just very casually said, "Oh yes, no, she was teaching journalism," i.e., as as the Iranians would interpret, you know. Uh, fermenting sedition that's what that would admit that was what that would mean to them you know stupid careless but he wasn't sacked and now he is the prime minister unbelievably and he can't he just doesn't sack his own ministers when they are openly corrupt do you think that i mean i i, I remember studying politics 50 starting to study politics seriously about 15 years ago you know, Britain was always scored consistently high in international rankings for for the lack of corruption. And now I think we're we're on our way to becoming a, a third world country. Um, I, I'm being told that that Bradley can't hear me. I think Zencaster just does this sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. Join back in. Yeah, he, he can't hear you. Um, I can hear him though, which is strange because he, he dropped out. Oh, okay. 
Um, well, I'll get you because you can't because you can't hear what I've said. I'll get Callum to sort of answer my question, and then maybe Bradley can respond to that, and I'll see if I can hear him. I think the issue around corruption in in the United Kingdom is that, as we said, it's for so long been behind closed doors. You know, these sort of smoke filled rooms, um, and it's all been done over dinner and things like that. It's not as it's not as much as as, as airing dirty laundry in public as it as it has been before but i think that's starting to change i i really do think that that's starting to change and it's almost acceptable or it's common knowledge that to be a politician is to be this shady figure that somebody that's willing to take a brown paper bag um full of some money but i think that it shouldn't be like that and i think as as um activists as people involved in politics ourselves I think we should be standing up to that and being critical at any point. No matter what side we see corruption on, we should be opposing it. So if we're seeing someone in the Labour Party equally being as corrupt, we stand up to it and we say no, because otherwise we do get to this slippery slope. We get to that point where corruption's a norm. We just accept it as it is. And then we just, you know, we, we, we just say that, the most corrupt person gets their way. The person that's willing to pay for a politician's service is the one that's going to get their way. Because we had the the uh, questions for for money scandal, and that's that's another that's another example of in the increasing public airing of corruption amongst our political class. So I think that ultimately we should be opposing it. We should be standing up to it. And I think that the media should be doing a lot more to be exposing this. So we're uh, we're uh, we're coming up to uh, one hour. Uh, it is um, it uh, seems to be the case that the country is becoming more corrupt um, by the day. But as I said earlier, there's always cause for optimism. Sometimes when this becomes much more open, uh, we saw this uh, in the. Soviet Union in the latter part of the 20th century uh, once people started to disbelieve what they were reading in the papers what they were seeing in the in the media once they started to think of their politicians as corrupt as the economy was uh, starting to fail them and people became uh, primes to look for alternatives and I think we have to um, realize that people do want to see change um, h- how we move forward and channel that maybe Keir Starmer with his uh, uh, sort of forensic uh, you know as, as we like to call it mature uh, statesman like approach maybe that's the way forward we'll, we'll have to see um, we'll keep a close eye on it going forward. We'll still be there to comment. We'll be back uh, hopefully next week. Um, but for now, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from Callum. Goodbye, everyone. And I can't hear him, but uh, goodbye from Bradley Allsop. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.